So today we're wrapping up our series uh, in the first part of Ephesians here. We're going to continue through the whole book, but the way that Ephesians is laid out is uh, <clears throat> kind of the first three chapters are really about what God has done, what, what the, uh, the identity that we find in the gospel. Paul really takes three chapters to talk about that. Then the last three chapters are all about how we ought to live in light of what God has done. Through Christ, And so uh, today as we wrap this up, it's going to be a little bit different type of a sermon. We're going to be reflective because uh, Paul is reflective in these verses that we see about what the work of grace that God is doing in us. And so we want to investigate that today. So the big idea of where we're going today is that God's scandalous grace changes everything. God's gr- we really believe that God's grace changes every single thing about us. And we're going to ask ourselves a big question uh, throughout this sermon today, and it's this. Is God's grace changing me? And we'll ask the Holy Spirit to take an inventory inside of us all this morning. Uh, I recently heard about uh, uh, the calling of a religious leader that I wanted to share with you guys. And I wanted to see if you could maybe figure out which religious leader uh, I'm talking about this morning. Uh, so a boy grows up in a wealthy family uh, in a major city in a sophisticated culture. And as a child, he is immersed in orthodox religion. Uh, of his country and attends one of the most well-known worship places of worship in his city. Uh, In that setting, he becomes a disciple under some of the most influential leaders of his tradition. He becomes a zealot for his faith, passionately devouring its teachings and passionately pursuing its enemies. And then the unthinkable happens. He becomes convinced that the very people uh, he has been opposing are right about their, their faith. And he kind of jumps ship and starts to believe what they believe. And uh, though they are small in number and despised by his religious leaders and culture, this young man joins the ranks of those he zealously opposes. He enters into an intense se- uh, season of study and prayer, fasting and physical uh, preparation to fulfill this new calling to advance this new faith's message. Uh, In subsequent years, this man's reputation would be slain and his comforts would be stripped away from him. Although all of this happens, he never wavers from his faith and eventually becomes a martyr. Who is this man I'm talking about? Wrong. Jabril Amriki, an Atlanta native that grew up as a Baptist at one of the most prestigious churches in Atlanta, then becoming a Muslim and joining forces with Al-Qaeda and dying in 1997, while participating in a jihadist attack in Kashmir. Now before, uh, when I was mentioning that, you guys were thinking, oh, Apostle Paul, here we go, he's going, uh, I know exactly, this sounds exactly like his story. Their stories sound all too familiar, don't they? The Apostle Paul and this guy. Uh, both claim to be called of God. Both claim to serve God. Both would give their lives to what they believe is God. But both callings are not of God. Both callings do not produce the fruit the scriptures describe as one should expect who is in Christ. One lines up with the truth of God expressed in our Bible, the other does not. This realization pushes us to determine the answer to this question right here. What does it look like when God's grace changes someone? And that's what we're asking God to show us this morning. So in this passage of scripture that we look at in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 13, it's really interesting because Paul kind of gets caught up in his own story of grace about the work that God has done. And he, he, loses, he loses track of what he's supposed to be talking about, and he starts to, to think about the work that God has done inside of him. It's this beautiful, holy rambling that we see in Ephesians 3, and we're going to spend our time today in that. Um, so what does it look like when God's grace 
changes someone. And the big question that we're asking is this, is God's grace changing me? So let's, uh, let's read this. I'm going to give you a kind of a blueprint of where we're going today. Um, and it's this right here. Uh, is grace leading me to, uh, one, die to self, be poured out for others, be active in God's mission, be affectionate for the church, be hopeful through suffering? Now, I don't want you to think of this as a to-do list because that's not what this is. But in the scriptures, there, uh, just like in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us about all this beautiful work that God has done for me and for you. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 says, okay, in light of what God has done, how should we live? So we've got to talk about the imperatives of the Bible as well, or we're not going to be preaching the whole Bible. So that's what we're going to look into today. But it all comes from grace. It's nothing we can do on our own. So uh, let's read uh, Ephesians uh, 3, 1 and 2 together. Uh, Is grace leading me to die to self? Here's what Paul says. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So that's kind of his intro. And then he goes into assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You see what happens is is Paul kind of gets caught up. He gets distracted by the grace of God. He's so so overwhelmed by the magnitude of what grace does inside of our hearts that he can't stop talking about it. And for some reason, he just includes this in his letter that he's writing here. His mind begins to wander uh, into the grace of God, and he gets distracted. You know, Paul gets distracted, and he writes about the gospel. I get distracted in a stoplight, and I look down at my phone, right? How many of you guys are guilty of this? The light turns green, and what happens? All of a sudden, you hear, beep, 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 beep. You're like, oh, man. And then what do you, you leave the light, you leave the white line, and you leave that person sitting at the next red light, right? Anybody ever done that before? Yeah, yeah. That's happened to me a few times, and I have done that to people as well. And it's always like a dilemma, right? Because you're, you're like, okay, the person in front of me is not going, so do I beep the horn, or do I not? It's like, what would Jesus do in this situation? Because I remember that Jesus, uh, you know, was very gracious and very patient. Love is patient, right? But I also remember Jesus walking into the temple and flipping over that table, right? So you're kind of like, I don't know what to do there. Anyway, we get distracted. So what happens here uh, is is Paul, this scripture says that Paul is a prisoner at this time in Rome. So uh, he's a, but he doesn't mention his his, his uh, uh, Rome having his custody in this story. Instead, he says that he's a prisoner of who? Of Jesus. He's a prisoner of Jesus. He doesn't mention the fact that he's actually chained uh, in Rome while writing this letter to these Ephesians. So Paul is a prisoner of Jesus. Um, so he says, I'd rather, I'd rather go be with Jesus, but I have a responsibility to fight the good fight of the faith. I have a responsibility to send this gospel message to the world, to these Gentiles, because Uh, God met me on the road to Damascus, and he blinded me, and he gave me this mission to take the gospel to people that never heard it before. That's why Paul is in chains. That's why Paul is still fighting the fight of the faith. Um, And it's funny because, you know, I'd always looked over the fact that in the story of Paul's conversion, uh, God does something. He changes uh, his name, right? His name was originally Saul, and he changes it to Paul. Well, I got to look in this week. I'm like, well, what's the significance about that? Do you know what the word Paul means? It means small. So here you have this religious, pharisaical giant who's converted on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up, reveals himself to him, saves this man, and then he changes his name to small. 
I think there's some significance in that, in the sense that, that Paul would, would go on this journey of seeing that he is not all he thought he was cracked up to be. And that God would use him, in spite of what his apparent strengths were, he would use the smallness of Paul's faith to take the gospel to the ends of the world. It's, 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 um, it's funny because it's, it's almost like God is saying, Paul, I want you to lead out of your weakness. I want you to lead out of your limp, Paul. Uh, and you can read about this in 2 Corinthians 12 when uh, you read about the thorn in Paul's flesh. I think it's really interesting to see how Paul leads out of his weakness. He goes on to say that, that he's a steward of God's grace. Uh, and, and stewardship implies that if it doesn't, belong, uh, that it doesn't belong to you, but you're responsible for how it's distributed, right? So he says, I'm a steward of God's grace. That word steward, you know what that means? It means servant. Uh, it's, uh, no, minister means servant. I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. I'm getting ahead of myself. Forgive me. The steward of God's grace uh, is this idea. It comes from the same word that we see in Ephesians chapter 2 where he talks about the household of God. It comes from that same root word. So it's almost like Paul is responsible for the family plan laying out for God's grace to go to the world. Uh, and then he goes on to say that he's a servant of God's word on in Ephesians 3 as well. So we've got we've to deal with what this means to be a steward of God's grace. He says something, I think it kind of leads us to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says this, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's something significant about the cross you're going to notice today. The cross is not fulfilling its use unless there is a body on it. I know in our culture today, we wear the cross as jewelry, and it's this beautiful picture to us, but we forget about what the cross actually is. It is a torture device. The cross always and only means death. That's what the cross means. So what is Paul saying here? I've been crucified with Christ. So he's saying, I, I was... I, Jesus was on the cross, he bore my punishment, but now in following Jesus, I'm to, to, to be on the cross as well, dying to myself every single day. Not to earn salvation, but rather to be made more like the one who earned our salvation. Paul sees himself as dead and buried in Christ. Paul's earthly prestige and his privilege that once had are constantly being whittled and chiseled away. God is refining him and taking his flesh away from him so that he can follow him more appropriately as, a, as an apostle of God. He is whittling him away. And I don't know about you, but I feel like God's been whittling me pretty heavily lately. I feel like he's had the chisel out on my life and just been, no, you can, we still need to take more of you away. More of you away. Down lower, down lower, as Andrew Murray says. You need to be more and more humble. And I'm tempted to think that this is a bad thing. This is the very plan of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Paul literally views himself as one who is at God's disposal. That's what it means to follow Christ. In uh, Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks about what this call to follow Christ, to follow him, is like. And here's what he says, Luke 9, 23 through 25. He says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
Notice the word daily in there. That's, that's significant. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Some heavy teaching by Jesus about what it means to be a disciple. So some words that kind of describe what it means to be a disciple for, of Jesus are, are this, denial and loss. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not what I remember signing up for as a Christian. I don't think people really threw that out to me when they shared the gospel with me. Hey, you should really deny yourself, and I want you to lose everything. That's what it means to follow Christ. Now, how attractive is that? It's not so attractive, is it? But this is what the work of the Spirit is in our lives, is, is to cause us to deny ourselves and to be like Paul, small. It's like John the Baptist says in uh, John 3.30. When, when people think that John the Baptist is the Savior, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I must decrease. He must increase. That's what it means to follow Christ. We have to die to ourselves. This is the work that God's Spirit is bound to do in us. This is what we can all expect. And it is the best thing for us because we are made more like Jesus. There's no way that we can be made more like Jesus except for that cross. So I'm not talking about physically, obviously, but maybe physically. Maybe, maybe, maybe our faith will lead us to death. Uh, certainly it did with uh, Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim Elliott has this great quote. Uh, maybe you've heard it before. I want to read it to you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is the call of Christ. This is what it means to be crucified to ourselves so that we can be raised with Jesus. This is the work that God wants to do. As my friend Ty says this, Jesus doesn't want to make you better. Now, that's a, that's a really popular message and a message that we love to hear, don't we? Man, Jesus is just making me better. He's just kind of propping me up a little bit. I'm looking a lot better because I got Jesus on my side. Jesus doesn't want to make you better. He wants to make you deader. That's the work of the cross. He wants to kill your flesh so that he can be exalted in your life. This is what Paul was experiencing as he was talking about what it means to be changed by the grace of God. I don't know about you, but the cross still has a lot of work to do in my life when I think about it. And I think Paul was far from being perfect when he wrote these words as well. So the cross has to do its work in our lives. Uh, and there's no, there's no way to be made like Jesus except for the cross. And so if you're in a place in life right now where you're like, man, just really dealing with a lot of hard stuff and I just, I hate this thing. I, this suffering, all this stuff I'm going through, I just don't want it. Well, your sovereign Father in heaven sees it appropriate that you deal with whatever you're going through right now. But it's because his long-term love for your life, his eternal plan for your life to make you more like his son, Jesus. That's the work that God's doing. Number two, is grace leading me to be poured out for others? Uh, so let's read Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. So as Paul's getting caught up here, I want to read the last part of verse 2 as well. It probably won't be on the screen. He says, assuming you've heard about how I was made a steward of God's grace for you. And we're picking up in verse 3 here. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That's really significant. Underline that in your Bible. By revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, <clears throat> you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Uh, which, was, which was not made known to some of the, um, to the sons of men in other generations. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, get this right here, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Are you seeing a theme through the book of Ephesians? You're seeing this theme of unity in the, in the body, right? He continues to talk about this difference um, in the Jews and the Gentiles and how they're part of the same body. This is the work that Jesus has done. He has torn down the dividing walls of hostility. And remember a couple weeks ago, we said that there are some dividing walls of hostility in our culture as well. That God wants to break down those things to make his people more like himself, to be one body. And we'll be looking at that again in a couple weeks, that, that theme of oneness. I don't know about you, there's this word mystery in here we got to deal with. I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. I love, uh, I love the, the mysteriousness of the story, trying to figure something out. And, and one of the first times I ran across this idea of a mystery when I was watching the best Christmas movie in the history of the world. Anybody want to take a stab at it? A Christmas story, one of the best, I mean, TBS all day, I was watching it all day, what a great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, there'll be a time to repent after the sermon, and, uh, and you can go rent it at uh, Redbox or whatever, maybe. But A Christmas Story, so in A Christmas Story, uh, I was so stoked for Ralphie. Ralphie's one of the kids here, kind of the main actor in the story. Uh, Ralphie is so excited to get this little thing uh, called the Secret Decoder Ring uh, from the Little Orphan Annie uh, show that he's listening to on the radio. He turns it on every night, and he's trying to get all the things so he can get this secret decoder ring, only to find out that the mystery that the secret decoder ring reveals is this, drink more Ovaltine. Are you kidding me? That's not a mystery. That's a marketing scheme. So this mystery that Paul is talking about is much different than this lame mystery that Ralphie experiences here. This mystery is that the grace of God is for everyone, regardless of what you've done, what you've come from, what race you are, what kind of neighborhood you grew up in, what you did in your previous life. This grace of God is for everyone, and Paul is stoked to tell the world about it. He's so stoked that he's like, hey, they're going to they're gonna put me in chains in Rome, but I'm going to start writing letters, and they're going to start circulating these letters, and the gospel is going to go forth, and the Holy Spirit is going to redeem people as they read these letters out loud because the word is going to go forth. Paul, is, Paul considers it such a blessing to be about this mystery and to proclaim this mystery. So how can this grace be for everyone? I mean, doesn't God care about what you did in your, your past life? I mean, the sins you committed last week, doesn't he really care about, don't they really offend him? Absolutely they do. But that's how big the cross was. When Jesus got on the cross, he bore all the sin of the world so that we could be saved. Past, present, future, done. That's the bigness of of the grace of God in Christ. So if you didn't do anything to earn it, how can you contribute anything to the deal of you receiving God's grace? You, you contribute nothing to receiving God's grace and becoming a Christian. So these, these Ephesian readers would have had something in view about this word mystery that's not obvious to us unless you study church history, unless you study all these heresies that the church has dealt with for years. That's why we read the Apostles' Creed. Creeds and confessions are like the guardrails of the church because people start to interpret the Scripture a little bit more and more loosely, and all of a sudden you're believing things that completely contradict the Bible. And so that's why we're a confessional church because we want to stay along the tracks of orthodoxy. And so there was this heresy that arose. Uh, 
really prominently in, in uh, Corinth, but also subtly in the city of Ephesus. It's called Gnosticism. And I'm going to be brief, but I want to tell you a little bit about this. Gnosticism was a heresy or a false truth that ran rampant throughout the land that said this. Salvation is achieved by having special knowledge, having the secret knowledge. And so you've got to spend your whole life doing whatever it takes to receive this secret knowledge. And so how do you get this special knowledge? Well, you have to deny yourself of material possessions, of of everything. Gnosticism said that the material world is wrong. Uh, and so you've got to, you've got to uh, live an, an aesthetic life, an ascetic life, there we go. <laughs> and you've got to go and you've got to be uh, on your own. This is how you get this secret knowledge. Now, I want you to notice, what is, what is Gnosticism all about? It's all about you, right? Now, what is the gospel all about? It's all about Jesus. So these two things don't line up. So Paul was dealing with this even as he's writing this letter. The mystery would have been this special message that gives salvation that would have been brought by a selected individual called the Redeemer. So Gnosticism was coming to Ephesus, and these Christians would have been really familiar with what that word mystery means. Um, and what we, what we see about Gnosticism is that it's all about information. Now, information, apart from the Holy Spirit, does not equal transformation. Information, the gospel... Coupled with the Holy Spirit equals a transformed life. And this is what Paul wanted to declare to them. So Paul redefines it. And in the Bible we see that the mystery uh, is the gospel. So the grace is for everyone who believes in Jesus. is always made known by one way. The word of God. And so Paul was doing whatever it took to let the world know about the word of God. The gospel. The logos. What Jesus has done. And so what happens is as the word goes forth, as people preach the word in public places, just like I'm preaching right now, the Holy Spirit would come alongside the word and it would wake people up from the dead and all of a sudden they would begin to believe this good news. You know, as a pastor, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people about Jesus. It's like I'm a professional you know, evangelist, right? I've heard people call me that before, which is interesting. But uh, anyway, we're all called to that work, but I do like to talk to people about Jesus. This week, I had an awesome opportunity to talk to this young man here at New City Church about Jesus. And the, the beautiful thing about this is that uh, this young man said, you know, Ryan, I kind of went to church a little bit when I was younger. I had a Bible, and I, I read the Bible, but it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't have any concern about the Word of God. I didn't care what it meant at all. But all of a sudden, God brought me to this place where I got to the end of myself, and all of a sudden, these words they started to be like really good news to me, and I couldn't get enough of it. And I looked across from him, and I said, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, my friend. There's no way in the world this would be good news to you unless the Holy Spirit comes upon your life and reveals himself to you. And he does this through the Word of God. This is why we must preach the Word. This is why you must be in the Word. Because apart from the Word, we, how do we know who God is? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's true? And the Holy Spirit confirms this in us as we follow God. Paul, okay, all right, let me settle down here. So 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul talks about this idea of the cross a little bit more. Um, and here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of God is folly to those who are perishing. I'm sorry, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So why is the cross folly to the everyday ordinary person? Why is that cross, why would that be like not good news? Well, it's because 
The cross is a foolish message. It shows a weak and feeble Savior dying so that he can give life to all people. You see what people want is they want a conquering king. They want somebody with power, somebody with authority. And what the world doesn't understand is that that only comes through the cross. That's the only way that we have that power, that confidence, that boldness, that assurance that Paul talks about is through the cross. So instead the cross becomes power to deny ourselves. So as we're being made more like Jesus, the cross is the instrument that God uses in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus, to whittle us, to chisel us away until only he remains. So the cross kills pride because it discloses our need and humbles our hearts as we think about his death and then our death in light of his death. So the heresy of Gnosticism was also running rampant through Corinth. I want to read this passage of Scripture. Now, you don't have to write this down. Just listen to what Paul says in light of this whole idea of Gnosticism and, and trying to, to earn your way to God through just knowledge, through a, um, an academic pursuit. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 10. Just listen to it. And I, when I came to you, this is Paul, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Strong man, not so much. And my messages were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, you Gnostics. Don't rest in that, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which, was, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through what? The Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The mystery is that only in Christ can our weakness be exposed and our strength be revealed. So you, Christian, as you are struggling this week, as you are hurting this week, as you are wondering what God is up to in your life, if you are suffering, you're probably more like Jesus than you've ever been in your life. Because this is how God makes us more like his son. The cross can only be made good news to us by the Spirit. The Gnostic thought says, I can know about God, I can clean myself up enough, I can get to God on my own. But the cross says there's no other way except the cross. And that's really good news to us. So only by the Spirit do we know God. So let's move on to uh, uh, number three. Is grace leading me to be active in God's mission? Let me read this. So Paul begins to talk about his call. He begins to talk about specifically what God has called him to do. Of this gospel, he says, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So what's Paul's message? Is to preach the word, to preach the gospel with his life. So as I mentioned earlier, this word minister is interesting because it really means a servant. It's the same word that we get the, the office in the church deacon from, diaconos. So he's a servant of the word. So so many times in my life, I want to use the word for my good. I want to make people think that, oh, look, he knows the word and he does this. Paul says, no, 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 I submit my life under the word. I'm a servant of the word of God. It tells me what to do. I follow what the Holy Spirit leads me into. So we see that Paul's mission is to advance the gospel. Now, a lot of times when we think about the word mission, uh, we think about overseas stuff or we think about service projects like we're doing here at Richards or things like that. But when you hear the word mission in New City Church and in the Bible, what I want you to think about is this, the advancement of the gospel, that the gospel has to go forth. There's no other way that people can be saved except by the word of God. There's no other way that you guys can be strengthened. If I stop preaching the word of God, this church is useless to you. It's the only power that we've got. And then the spirit comes along and just applies that to our lives. So he wanted these Gentiles to know that the only place life could be found is in Christ. He was on a mission, even from prison. And so Paul's mission was to preach the word. Our mission to preach the word. You're saying, oh, Ryan, I haven't been to divinity school. I don't really, I, you know, I'm just kind of getting to know the Bible now. I don't even know where all the books in the Bible are. I mean, how could God use me? Well, friends, it doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter what your experience is. If you know Christ and Christ crucified, you've got enough news to share. Now, do we do this just by standing on the street corner and preaching the word out to those that walk by? No. We do this through the way that we live our lives through the way that we neighbor our neighbors, through the work ethic that we have at work, through the way that we lead our families. We're sharing the gospel in all of these ways. So, uh, you know, I, I know it's tough sometimes to think about uh, just kind of the vocational calling uh, of the Christian. Sometimes we think that, our, you know, if, if I just could get away from my job more, then I would have more time to do God's work. What if God's plan all along was to use you in that position, in that vocation that you have? It's beautiful when people realize this. There's been a couple people in the church that in the last couple years have come to this conclusion that, hey, God really can use me in my place of work. He can send the gospel forth through what, I, what I'm doing for a living. It's this beautiful marriage that we see of the gospel going forth and, and your needs being met as well as they need to be. So God's mission is to advance the gospel. And it's not our job to decide who the gospel's for and who it's not for. Right? This is what Paul said, hey, the world's got to know. The world has got, there's a, there's a passage in Acts where it talks about, it, it says this, it's a little phrase, it says, in all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, or all of Asia heard the gospel. And I thought, man, all of Asia heard the gospel? He's probably talking about Asia Minor, but anyway. All, so they, they had to get the news out, because then they knew if they got the news out, then the Holy Spirit, it's his time to kind of kick into gear and do his thing. But isn't it neat how God uses us? To advance the gospel? He could do it in any way. But he's chosen to use his church, me and you, to send forth the good news. We're participants of God's mission going forward. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing to me. Are we on his mission? Number four, 
Is grace leading me to be affectionate for the church? So Paul goes on to say this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made uh, to, uh, to the known, uh, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. So through God's new unified people, Jews and Gentiles, all of humanity that believes in Jesus, the church, God wants to make, uh, this is how God is making the wisdom of himself known. That word manifold means many-sided, kind of many-colored wisdom of God. And the really interesting thing about this passage is this whole phrase about rulers and authorities. Uh, I I had to like double check. I'm like, I don't know if this is right or not. So this idea of um, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, what's that mean? Well, what God is doing through the church, and don't miss this, it's big. What God is doing through the church is he's making the gospel known to angels through the church. You're thinking, well, don't angels like, don't they kind of know everything? This scripture is saying, well, we know that angels aren't omniscient. So he's, he's making the gospel known to even heavenly beings through the church. Now, I couldn't get my mind around that. That's the bigness of what's going on as the gospel is advancing in this little church here in Lawrenceville. As we're sitting in a, ca- a, a tater tot infested cafeteria. Uh, with milk cartons that are probably expired over there, you know. God is sending the gospel forth, not only to the world, not only to Lawrenceville, not only to Gwinnett County, not only to Lawrenceville, but throughout the universe. That's the bigness of what God is doing. Think of it like this. The gospel is, is kind of like this big kind of, um, it's kind of like this big play. So history is the theater. The world is the stage. The church in every age and stage are the actors, and God is the director and the producer. But who is the audience? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Listen to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. Just listen to it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen to this. Things into which angels long to look. God is doing a big thing here, guys. God is showing the angels the beauty of the gospel through the church. Lastly, is grace leading me to be um, hopeful through suffering? Paul closes out this holy rambling by saying this. In whom we have boldness, he's talking about the, the Father through Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He's reminded, these Ephesians know he's in prison. Don't lose heart because I'm suffering. Because I'm suffering for your glory. I'm suffering so you could know the word. It couldn't happen any other way right now unless I do this. Hope is always born in suffering. Hope is always born in suffering. We, friends, we have a weak theology of suffering. We think that God is mad at us when we suffer. 
We think that God is far from us when we suffer. But it is the instrument of making us more like Jesus. Our strength comes from the fact that we now approach God boldly and confidently because of our faith in Jesus. Jesus has reason to be prideful. He's earned the salvation. We, we can now know and approach God with this same type of confidence because the work of Jesus belongs to me. It's not just Jesus. It belongs to me because I'm united by faith in Christ to God forever. This is why we can approach our Father confidently and boldly because he belongs to us. Recently, um, a friend told me this. You know, our family, I've told some of you guys about this. We've just had a lot of just health things going on uh, for the last three months or so. Actually, ever since we started New City Church. So I'm not surprised at, you know, the the enemy's uh, schemes. Uh, But it does make it difficult day to day sometimes. Uh, A friend recently told me this. Preach out of your pain. That's what he told me. Preach out of your pain. I thought, man, what's that mean? Preach out of your pain. See, I want to, I want to, um, I want to manage my suffering. I want to set up systems and things in my life to reduce the suffering. All the while, God's like, no, 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 don't reduce it. Let my glory be made known in you, Paul. Paul, you're in prison. Let my glory be made known from you. You're suffering. You're in these chains. What's so that I can be magnified, Paul? What would it look like for you and I to preach out of our pain? What would it look like to not run away when things get tough? What would it look like for God to be magnified through the things that you despise in your life? Because God doesn't waste anything. Your suffering is not in vain. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering. And there's a war waging in your heart, in my heart, in your soul, in my soul, and it's our flesh. And we're all in this war, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And the instrument for our healing is the cross of Jesus. So in the words of Jesus, he says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Paul is caught up in the word here this morning because it's good news. It's our only hope. Is grace changing us? And so this morning, friends, what we're asking ourselves is, is grace changing us? And and how does God want to use the cross more in our life to make us like his son, Jesus? Uh, I recently read a quote by this guy named David Brainerd. He said this, God, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. You see, when you decrease and he increases, you've got no hold on what he wants to do with your life. And my prayer is there'd be people in here that would pray this prayer and we'd see God move in ways that would shake the mountains because of his Holy Spirit making his word alive in our hearts. 